Welcome to Film Fight Club, the show where we don't talk about film, we fight about film. I'm Glenn Falconside from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, everyone! And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Greetings. Now, we're very excited for this week because we're doing something new. Usually we have a review of the week, but this time around, we're doing not one, not two, but how many? Three movies. Oh my God. Three movies. It is a big week of film. We're going to be talking about The Big Sick. So many movies, not enough time. We've got Atomic Blonde. Atomic Blonde, we're very excited for. But first up, we have a film that is being released in cinemas tomorrow. Luke Besson's latest, the director of The Fifth Element, the biggest independent feature of all time, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Valerian and Lorelei, actually. Yes, right. absolutely. Based that's on the comic, for French comic, Valerian and Lorelei, it stars Dane DeHaan and Kyra Delevingne as the titular heroes, alongside Clive Owen, Rihanna and Ethan Hawke. Now, it's a bit of a strange plot. Um, it's a space colony with thousands of species, which has evolved from the Earth hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and the two agents tasked with the protection of the society... Uh, following the early destruction of a planet in the film's opening frames, soon uncover a plot which goes to the very heart of their society and they have to go on a mission where they encounter any number of fantastical species. Chris, what do we think of this film? Well, this film is nuts. Maybe not as nuts as The Fifth Element, but if you have seen that film, you have a bit of an idea of what to expect. I found this movie to be sort of like an inverse of what the Marvel films are offering us as far as sci-fi and fantasy movies go these days. There we go. We're back on the Marvel Brigade. (laughs) Marvel is just Hang on the Marvel. Hang on the Marvel. Marvel films have very good chemistry between the leads and well-written banter and good performances. And this film has none of that. The acting, (laughs) the performances, and the humor... best joke you've cracked in the entirety of our <laughs> Thank you, <series>. thank you. <laughs> but all of these things are often awful in Valerian. However, where Marvel films become boring to me is in the plotting and the actual sci-fi and fantasy elements, which tend to be very going through the motion, and the CG action sequences, which are boring and unimaginative. Whereas in this film, this movie is brimming with imagination. There are so many ideas, so many amazing colors. There's an artist's touch in the way that the action is laid out. It's full of incredible science fiction and fantasy ideas, and I'm going to recommend it just on the strength of that alone. I know, I mean, that opening sequence with, uh, you know, all the alien species coming in and greeting each other, I think that's the most inventive opening sequence and most memorable of the entire year. And it's followed up by an incredibly imagined uh, suspense and action sequence involving characters in... uh, trying to stop a transfer of goods across multiple dimensions where they're simultaneously in two dimensions at once. It's it's a really, I mean... I don't want to use the word trippy, but it is a very it trippy film. It is so film. trippy. It's a very My good God. trippy film. This is, really? Yeah, you can really tell this is a product of the counterculture years. Well, it, oh, well, I can say it takes you on a trip. Let's, let's put it that way. It does, it does. And there was so much to enjoy about this film. And I love the CGI. I love the extended sequence involving those green aliens. But I've got to say, you know, I... So many aliens. So many aliens, yeah. But Luc Besson, and I do enjoy the world-building aspect, but he was too focused on world-building here than he was on plot. And we saw in The Fifth Element a man who can plot out a film exceptionally well, as he did we saw in The Professional and any number of his other features. But here, I think he was too obsessed with this broad CGI stroke scene create and then actually, you know, getting into the nitty-gritty of these characters. I mean, okay, I've got a straw man theory here, so bear with me. I think Luc Besson actually did a masterstroke. I think he knew that, you know, he's creating such an expansive world and he didn't want his actors to take away all the credit. So he deliberately cast 
pretty terrible actors. So it was a ploy, okay, guys? So the real hero in this film is the world building, are the real artists who I th- I th- spend I th- so much time. I think there's virtue in casting someone who doesn't add much to the film so you can let the action shine, like like um, Keanu Reeves you know, in John Wick, who just does enough. But I, th- I, think, I think Dane DeHaan and Cara Delevingne are downright terrible at times. Yeah. But I oh, kind but- of enjoyed that because that meant I could actually focus on the world because I just knew as soon as they were in the frame that I had to tune out looking at them. I'm sorry, so the best thing you could say about this film was that they cast bad actors. Yes. And I've got to tell you, it's bad. Cara Delevingne, she's not a great actress. We've seen in the paper times, we've seen in Suicide Squad. She could not carry film and she could not carry this one. Oh my God, bring on the haters. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, any thing, Cara Delevingne fans yeah, yeah, out there. The thing for me is all of the faults that Glenn is mentioning here are, in my opinion, correct. But for me, it doesn't stop this from being a great movie and my favorite of the week because... It's just so much fun. You know, the world building is so far beyond what we get in other blockbusters these days that I'm able to forgive the things that this movie doesn't do so well because it's doing things well that no one else is doing. But the casting all up, I mean, Dane DeHaan, as good an actor as he is, like, he's Rihanna's not, good, okay, though. She's, okay, <laughs> and she's good. Okay, and Ethan Rihanna, Hawke was strange. Rihanna in a guest appearance is better than Cara Delevingne in the entire movie. Yeah. Just think about that. Ho- think about the you know, cosmic, cosmic injustice of that. But the title character, the title character is supposed to be well cast. And he was playing this Han Solo figure. Apparently, Elden Erkenreich was not available, and he is <laughs> not yeah, a good Dane, comedian. I mean, there's a scene where he try he says "Happy Birthday," and it's so sinister. Yeah, Dane DeHaan nice. is not suited to playing a heroic lead. And yeah. he's not the only one. I mean, Clive Owen, great actor, one of my favorites. And it just shows, I don't want to say too much about a character because you might you know a bit about the film, but he's playing against type. And it's not always good when an actor plays against type. I actually liked Clive Owen's character quite a bit. And I thought the performance was fine. Clive Owen goes places that a lot of popcorn blockbusters don't really go in in the darkness of his character and the ways that I mean it, it's not really a spoiler to say he's evil. That becomes clear pretty early on in the film. Um, but the ways that he's evil... And the movies comment on colonialism. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's shallow, social... but it's it's relevant. And I did yeah. actually care by the end of the movie. Oh, you mean the Navi, like this, this thinly veiled. Yes, <laughs> they, you've they seen do Avatar. look a lot like the Navi. What were you I mean, it, it, it's amazing. But let's talk about Ethan Hawke. Come on, guys, he was the most fun character. Oh in the yeah, so doing fun. <laughs> exactly, so much fun. So Fifth Element, that whole. And, segment. and, I, and I think, look, look, this is a movie that takes time out for, from the action for a dance sequence. You know, yeah. it's so excessive but, but and it's so throwing things at the wall, but in such an inventive and fun way. It just is infused with the spirit of invention. And I, I hate to say this, I agree with Chris again That's this week. What is going on here? I mean, look, and I had thoughts when I was watching this that 3D, you know, let's talk about it, 3D and where it's come from and how far it's come and what people think about 3D now versus how it was viewed when it came on the scene. You know, when 3D was starting out, it was this savior of technology and this sort of new, exciting array into our world. And Avatar came out and made it a whole lot of money. And then people kind of got cynical about it. And 3D films just used 3D for like five minutes or two seconds. This uses 3D pretty well. It does. And this does. And that's what, it got me excited about technology again. I'm like, okay, this is what it can do. Yeah, this movie has an artist's touch in the use of technology. In the the movement and the splashes of color, it feels so much more cohesive and... Um, individualistic and unique than CG blockbusters usually do. And I'll give it that, but at the same time, you know, if they'd spent a fraction of the 3D budget on, you know, a guy who could write, you know, a reasonable script. I mean, they literally just lifted the dialogue straight from the comics, and it works sometimes. You have to be campy about it. It felt a bit Babelfish. Yeah, I mean, Tintin did it well. Danger Diabolic, CQ, these films have done it exceptionally well. But this, you know, 
oh, um, awkward dialogue you can see on a page in speech bubbles, but that is not transcribed at all to a real life setting or real life actors. I mean, and I had other problems with it. This is supposed to be, you know, Cara Delevingne is supposed to be playing a badass, strong female character, except she's not. She's you not. Know, a, she's, she's not. not. A, yeah. the ca- her character, the way it's written in the film, is not a strong female character. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're waiting for Valerian to have this emotional, vulnerable moment. He never does, yeah. But he never does. It's so full of on himself. A, on a shallow, on a character level, it's very shallow. It's a very shallow character. But then, you know, that's not the film. And I yeah. still stick by my theory. This is... <laughs> you know, this is a deliberately miscast look, film. The, look, final thoughts for me. This is a movie with the inventiveness and the anything-can-happen craziness of Star Wars before it became a mega-franchise, yes. when it was a scrappy little movie in 1977. Yes, he clearly wants this to be a big franchise. Um, there's a talk about it being quite huge in the China market. There is a very, very conspicuous, you know... Yeah, hey, you got to do what you got to do to pay the bills. Yeah, so look, this uh, Valerian is in cinemas tomorrow. We may in the future see many more sequels which we will surely review. Fingers uh, crossed. We'll go to a <laughs> Hopefully quick... with better actors. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go to a quick break and we'll be back talking about the big sick. Stay Bruce here. Willis is Valerian. <laughs> Welcome back to Film Fight Club. We are talking The Big Sick, and that was... And that was a song. Oh my God, that brings back so many memories. And that's a special song because it was the date song of Kumail's parents in The Big Sick. What a movie. Yes, The Big Sick, the breakout feature from Kumail Nanjiani and his spouse Emily V. Gordon. Based, according to the couple, uh, 60 to 65% on real life events that they experienced uh, Kumail plays himself and he falls in love with Emily played by Zoe Kazan uh, it's a lovely meet cute but they soon fall out of attentions with his family and the expectations that he will marry a Pakistani Muslim woman soon she becomes very sick as the title would suggest and then enters uh, her parents played by Holly Hunter and Ray Romano and then the film moves from rom-com territory into uh, different, very different territory involving Bro Russian- Time with Ray Romano <laughs> And uh, and very interesting interactions with his own family um, in their family home. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. It's a very solid Avatar production. And, you know, I'm disappointed that none of you guys complimented me on my singing just then. So my singing debut happened. (laughs) It was was amazing. We we will have future editions of Film Karaoke Club (laughs) where it's just Barat singing amazing Bollywood numbers. Fantastic. (laughs) But actually, yes, coming back to the big sick, it's... uh, a very strong dramatic film. I'm not sure whether it works as rom-com. So, you know, in that sense, I'm not sure whether the rom-com element was necessary, but as a dramatic film, it's very strong elements in there. Social commentary about multiculturalism, about, you know, people from different cultures trying to, you know, transcend their barriers, about how you actually have these conversations, which is very difficult, and about culture, about, you know, Muslimness living as Muslim identity. So there's a lot of things going on here and in a very interesting way. Whether it works as a rom-com, I'm not quite sure. But uh, you had some issues, I think, with the way that the culture was represented in this film? Yes. Uh, I mean, look, this is something which I struggled with as well, you know, as someone from an Indian culture. Uh, often, uh, you know, in films, what happens is that you exaggerate your own culture in order to 
to the point of stereotypes in order to, you know, relate to other cultures. This is what happened in this film as well, where Kumail's own family is somewhat caricaturish, you know, with his mother bringing in, you know, relationships with the range daughters the, of Pakistani women. Scenes, yeah. Someone's just, oh, she just dropped in. She just dropped in and, you know, she, we live in a cul-de-sac. <laughs> the uh, the hey. problem for me is that, yes, this is caricatured, as Virat just said. However, it turned... Um, I, I, I think, you know, with this film... Like there's a lot of funny bits. Um, the family, I think they were pretty good throughout. The one problem I did have with it was that they kind of had one of two modes: either trying to set Kamel up or being incensed that they couldn't. And there were some wonderful sequences with his brother where they're just hanging out. Um, and there's also a few funny sequences, not the best in the film, but where the brother attends this one-man workshop. Kamel is a comedian in the film; he's very much playing himself, as are many of the characters. Mm. But the the problem is that. The the relationship Kamel has with his family is never treated as a serious thing. It, basically, from what we see in the film, it seems like he thinks of it as essentially an annoyance and a joke. But then it turns out that he actually does care. And the film hasn't established this. And it turns out to be a major complication that the plot hinges on. So I don't think the film did a good enough job of treating his cultural ties seriously up until that moment. And I, and I think that's, that's a bigger problem. How do we actually create a film which looks at different cultures and respects each of them in their own spaces and that's where the film struggles it's a very good cross-cultural film but whether it actually respects its own cultures within its own spaces is not something I'm very convinced by well I took the view that some of the best sequences were and it's heavily you know visited in the trailers is his interactions with Ray Romano and Holly yeah. Hunter yeah that's the yeah, best and, part and they are exceptionally cast I mean, Ray Romano doesn't do a lot these days but he picks roles that are I mean you have all these characters in these, this film as I said essentially playing themselves Romano has made a career as has Jerry Seinfeld out of playing himself and he's not particularly distinct from his characters Ray Barone and everybody else Raymond in many respects but, but he's, it works he's given more room to be go to a darker dramatic place in this but and, and also he's playing it quite you know understated down to earth he's not actually trying to milk that which yeah. I really enjoy on the subject of characters playing themselves I have to say that I feel that Kamel Nanjiani was actually quite miscast as himself interesting because okay he carries the awkward comedian stuff well but he cannot handle the heavy dramatic stuff, and it's a strange yeah. clash with Zoe Kazan, who is acting her heart off and really selling the the yeah, darker dramatic stuff. Yeah, I think Zoe stuff. Kazan was fantastic. Yeah. I was blown away, and yeah. she's, she she's added fantastic. so much gravitas, she especially does. for like but, you know we're not going to spoil what happens, but the screen time she's there, which isn't justified in my opinion. She does. Fantastic yeah, job. But she has that presence throughout the film, she, but even more so, it's Holly Hunter. I mean, yeah. you have this phenomenal, amazing actress. The, the problem is that the, it centers around Kamel, who, instead of even attempting to carry across darker aspects of his personality, just comes across as smug whenever things get emotional. But he's surrounded by great performances, and that, in a way, lets the film down. Um, Zoe Kazan, as we were saying, is fantastic, but when the movie br goes into territory where she has to be more emotional and um, go to darker places, I feel the direction lets it down because it's from a pretty inexperienced director, Michael Showalter, and I don't think that he can carry across this drastic atonal shift as the film takes. And, and I did have, you know, some issues with the kind of humor which is directed at, you know, the cultures. For example, I just sang a Bollywood song and I quite enjoyed it, but if this was an appetite production like this one, that would have been a joke. You know, mm -hmm. that would have been the butt of the joke. Oh, it, was, look it at, was used pretty nicely at the yeah, end of the film, I would I say. Know, I know. That was a good moment. That was, that that, was a yeah. good moment. But the thing is, you know, this idea that your own culture somehow needs to be the butt of the joke, where, you know, the women, for example, that Kumail meets are 
not established as yeah, people. They I are mean, these m- sort of drop-ins that happen. Although, and, although it does go back on that later on and, yes, and very, start to very, humanize his dates. Yeah, very I think by that, so. by that yeah. point... Very pointed. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it takes a long time. Yes. Like a lot of Apatow formula films, it sets up things as a joke and then does the flip to, to pull at your heartstrings later in the, in the production. My issue with this actually more so was the way they did the script. I mean, I, I, I agree with the view that this would have worked better as a romance, as a Definitely. drama, than as a romantic comedy. Because the rom-com stuff is charming enough, but when it gets to the complication part, which everyone dreads in a rom-com, it's like, oh, this isn't very good. And it was great to move away from that into the less rom-com, more drama stuff later in the film. But it was so episodic in a sense. I mean, it's yeah. felt like a comedian set. And there are these moments where Zoe Kazan, Ray Romano drop these major bombshells, and they're just, after a couple of minutes, they're over as quickly as they began. And that was really frustrating. It was, I agree. But my favorite moment in the film was the sort of first meeting between Kumail and... and uh, Emily, Zoe Kazan's character, where he that uses, was good, you yeah. know, that was a beautiful moment. And I, I'm life. actually dreading it that I haven't used it because <laughs> I know my Urdu script and I is, should use this line which he used, which is, you know, spelling out people's names in Urdu. Fantastic calligraphy. As good as that early rom-com stuff is, I think I agree with Glenn that the film would be better if it trimmed that down and went straight in, into the more dramatic stuff involving Emily's parents later in the film and gave that more breathing room because it's actually very well handled, in my opinion. It's great performances. Um, pretty well written, just needs more time. Yeah, and I think that's that's my issue with it. I think Emily's parents, Ray and Worth Hunter, are better written characters than Kamel's parents. Mm-hmm. And even though I think Anupam Kher, who plays Kamel's dad, does a fantastic job once again in this movie. He's a great actor and he's given really good He's really good. He's given little he's very to really yeah, move around. Yeah. But even in that caricatured space, he does a fantastic job. And the annoying thing is all the best actors in the film are given very little time. Holly Hunter, as I said earlier, yeah. there's one scene. She's fantastic. Yeah, most actors either have, you know, there's a comedy scene, a dramatic scene in this film. There's a scene in the comedy club where she got, switches although, very quickly from very funny to very dark. Although, and no one else in the film can man, do that so well. that scene was bad. The, I think think just it's a a caricature you know it handles the inevitable confrontation with racism in the most grown worthy obvious way which is annoying because the film has already in a very funny scene with ray romano touched on it in a more subtle Uh, and interesting way uh, uh, actually in those sort of cross-cultural communications and those dialogues that's when the film actually is on firmer footing it really knows what it wants to do with it it's better when it's about the more specific aspects of this story rather than trying to touch on the broader for example rom-com or broad caricature of racism. It's great when it's looking at the specifics of a relationship between two parents or between um, Kumail and the parents of his love interest. It nails those things. There's a scene in the diner in the hospital, a bit of which has been played in the trailers, which is absolutely one of the funny scenes of the film. You absolutely, you know, knock him out of the park one line is there. Because I I think really this film is about identity, you know, whether it is Kumail's identity and his comfort with his own identity is how he finds himself as a Pakistani-American sort of in the middle space and whether he's smug about his American identity or he's uncomfortable with his Pakistani identity. So, you know, these are the sort of gray areas and the sort of liminal spaces, if I can use that very pretentious phrase, (laughs) you know, where the film really operates in and that's the beauty of it. But yes, when it wants to really hit you with a sledgehammer, that's when it gets a bit... On your nose, it does. And look, there's a lot to. It's, it's not good. Bad. It's good. It's we sound very wrong. negative. It's just that no, no, yeah, actually, there there's are, a lot to bite into. In fact, yeah, that's enjoyable. It's a good thing. Yeah, it's an imperfect film, but there's a but lot to still, recommend. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. More interesting than it's been advertised. It's about relationships between humans. I recommend it. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, we're going to go to a quick break, but we will be back talking about Atomic Blonde. Stay tuned.
was Blondie's Atomic, one of my all-time favorite songs, one of the greatest hits I've seen performed live, shockingly, shockingly absent from our next film, Atomic Blonde. How could they even do that? It's yeah. just like, you know, the title was begging for the song to be used. Yeah, but, you know, Atomic Blonde is still a better title than The Big Sick. True that, true that. And it did have a lot of fantastic movies. We'll give it credit. Atomic Blonde. You think Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets is a good title? It works for what it's trying to do. pretty long. So what did you think of of, uh, Atomic Blonde? Atomic Blonde. Uh, So first of all, what the film is. Charlie Theron, now one of the most undisputed biggest action stars in the world, joins up with David Leitch, the uncredited co-director of John Wick, set in the dying days of the Cold War. Atomic Blonde is in almost every respective film you will know and recognize. There's double crossing. There's what? that tell a lot more than the time. There's microfilm, there's a femme fatale played amazingly by Sophia Batella and a shady, you know, senior government figure saying, trust no one. So it's not a new film, but in every respect, it is thrilling. The plot is very convoluted. James McAvoy, John Goodman, Toby Jones, all these people drop in, but they are secondary to the absolutely, absolutely formidable action sequences and Theron is redoubtable in the role. She's front and center in every bit and she deserves full credit for the incredible stunt work that she did. Um, and while there are a lot of similarities to John Wick that we will get into, I think this film more than ably stands on its own as an excellent, excellent action flick. Yeah. <sighs> I find this to be like a, a grab bag of elements from other better films that it it never fully commits to something it's got a one-take action scene which is fantastic i'll give it credit for that but it's basically a rehash of things we've seen in children of men and seems to be in the movie because one-take action scenes are in vogue at the moment even though it's a break from what the film's been doing the rest of its runtime um it has this framework structure that and editing style that seems to be taken from guy ritchie movies but it's it's not committed to going all the way with that kind of slickness or that kind of attitude. Well, to be honest, I mean, Guy Ritchie hasn't been made a good Guy Ritchie movie in a long time. So That's in a way, snatch. it was very hey, nostalgic. I, I preferred Man from Uncle, his spy movie, over oh, this, yeah, actually. Yeah, that yeah, wasn't, that wasn't terrible. Yeah. No, but I mean, this, I'm going back to that one. There's a few fantastic action scenes, but the one shot one. And oh, it's just terrific. Going it's, and going yeah, and going. Yeah, because it's so brutal and the, the actors seem to actually take damage and struggle in a way that uh, yeah, they often don't I mean, in action films thing, these think, days. Watching, you know, firstly, not just, you know, actors in one thing, but also female actors, you know, in that gritty sort of taking punches space. It was believable. It was difficult to watch, actually. Maybe because that's why, because we don't see many female actors in that space. You know, it was revelatory this movie, to me. Yeah, it was more brutal than films often are with, yeah, action, it was with not male glamorous. action heroes. It wasn't glamorous action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very gritty action. No. But that's the, It felt like you were seeing the consequences of this violence, whether it was her, you know, taking someone to the stairwell and then rolling out onto the street yeah, yeah. in a number of Fantastic. Apartments. But the thing is that until that moment, in the rest of the action scenes, with the way that they're ironically counter- posed against 80s songs I, I think the movie's just going oh killing people is cool like this movie throws things at a wall and goes in a billion different yeah. directions uh, yeah, that's it doesn't my know problem, what it wants to be my problem is it was caught between two worlds one is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in the very gritty realistic spy world and the other is John Wick which mm. is very comic booky gun porn you know very much I'd be okay if this existed in the same universe as John Wick can you imagine yeah. a crossover because and there are a lot of similarities here I mean interestingly you'll, if, you, if you look very carefully a lot of the moves she takes are very similar to John Wick's. Um, there's one mm-hmm. figure in the first John Wick film who actually poses a physical challenge to John Wick. It's the same sort of situation here, and it's actually played by the same actor. But if you, but the, and then these scenes, you know, they are they cross the full gamut of what we've seen and we, we've come to expect and want from just like sequences. There's the jump from the several story building. Mm-hmm. There's a few exceptional car chases, and there's her in single for combat. And, and, and very no, children and men car chases yeah, once and, again. And there's not it's not a stuntman; it's her and. 
seeing an actor, and not just any actor, but you know, a A-list actress do this, it's thrilling. It's exceptional. She, my, my favorite moment of the film was the styling, the overall look of the film. Really, was my favorite part of it because there was the you know the the coats, the slender trench coats, okay. the wigs, but also in one moment we had Charlie Theron's top match the lampshade yeah. of the room, and I was like. I don't know how to feel about this, but it's really cool for some reason. I don't know why, but it felt cool. I'm surprised that you liked the style of the film. Oh, we're fighting again, are we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. I had a big issue with that, which is that this movie doesn't have any real love for the 80s, right? The, the outfits are all very contemporary. That's true. The uh, hotel that we spend a lot of time in that... Um, Charlie's Throne is staying in, just looks like a Nicholas Winding reference set, doesn't re- evoke the 80s at all. There's a reference to David Hasselhoff, to be fair. <laughs> right, yeah. right. But, but the way but, the. But m- that's kind of my point, that it sort of pretends to be in this Tinker Tailor Soldier Spice yeah, phase, it's, but it's actually in this John Wick and Yeah, it flirts yeah. with being a period piece, but it really isn't. Yeah. Um, she, it uses 80s music in a way that I hated. I love these songs, but it's almost never actually running with the energy of, the, of that music and using it to enhance yeah, the it, scene. It, it's more it's in always the using it as either a counterpoint. You know, to isn't it ironic that this fun pop, pop song is playing while dudes are getting shot in the head? Or it's being used in the way that rom coms used to use pop music, which is just layering it on mindlessly yeah. to create an energy as they transition between scenes. Yeah, I will. T- I will say, I give you that for the apartment complex where she jumps out with the rope. But the sequence where they're watching stalkers playing in the in a theater in the Alexander Place, there's a few where I think it is handled somewhat better. I get you have a grab bag of great hits like you do have a Suicide Squad, and you just mm. want to reel them out. But here, I think you know, under pressure, a few others, you did see them under pressure was a little better. Well, but it's just not often, you know. My point, my problem is the tone of the film. I mean, James McAvoy was brilliantly acting, but he was such a miscast in this world. Yeah. I mean, he's someone trying to do deep philosophy in a film that doesn't care about philosophy. Let's be honest about that. This movie doesn't. So I doesn't felt very jarred by his presence. Care about this... anything? It just felt kind of shallow and nihilistic to me. Yeah, but then McAvoy's nihilism actually has a point. It's this very interesting, once again, very Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy sort of sense. It's interesting. To it. This is a character that's. Pretty much straight out of not so much Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. The spy came in from the, the cult. Yeah, the, the John Le right. Carre. It world. is. Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. From that sort of dynamic. It's interesting so, though. They do exist because this because in um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is an interesting reference because Catherine. Oh my God, Lorraine. <laughs> Lorraine. Lorraine. Yes, Lorraine Thank Broughton you. is the Charlie character. Yes, Lorraine does actually evoke Gary Oldman yes. in that film yes. and how stoic she is. Exactly. But the problem is that in that film, his stoicness seemed to be hiding in a depths. Whereas in this movie, I just found her to be completely boring, which doesn't really work for an action movie protagonist. Yeah, She's it, so stoic and just so icy and strong without having any interesting vulnerabilities. And by the third act, there was so much double crossing, triple crossing quadruple crossing that I yeah, just that, felt that, a bit lost. Yeah, but, like but said, it didn't plot, matter. But the plot it is did not little, matter. Yeah, it didn't matter. It didn't matter because the action sequences were the, the, fr- the brunt of the film. Yeah, they but were. that's and, my yeah. problem. This film pretends that the philosophy does matter. Yeah, how about... Know? But it, it doesn't. It doesn't. How about excising all these double, triple cross games and just making a sleek action movie like John Wick if that's what the yeah, movie Yeah, you know, if do. you want to go for entertainment, just make an entertaining movie. I would still love to watch it's it. It's a film with an identity crisis. But the deception elements which you see in these Cold War films, which were, were evident here, were Sally only really evident in the third act, had you said, when it becomes the double, triple cross again, if that was spread out throughout the film a little more, and the one particular character turning made a little bit more sense, yes, I would have gone more bored with it, but it was there, and it was evident, and I think it was, well, the one thing, the one exception I did take to the film was it was a little hacked in how they did the, the ration and jumping to this interrogation room, just breaking up the tension throughout the film, but that did establish that there is a broader world, a broader game at play here, which But what is that play? Here. What what was that play? I don't want uh, to ruin the film. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> I actually don't think there was any broader play. Like, what is that play? 
play? Like, does it matter? No, I didn't. And the MacGuffin in this movie is the same one we see in every lazy kind of spy movie. Ooh, a list of all the people in, you know, yeah, undercover. Yeah, but, like, but even though right, it works again, well into her characters we saw later yeah, in the film, it, that, Yeah, okay, that did pay off, but... Does it and what was Sophie Butella doing in this movie again? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give her credit because she doesn't often get a lot of media roles where she actually gets the opportunity to speak. But she did in this film compared to the mommy or compared <laughs> like, to honestly, Kingsman. like, uh, are we saying that because she got a speaking part, that's a good thing? Is that the level that we're aspiring <laughs> to? I mean, I'm saying I'm glad she got a media role in this film. She has another, <laughs> okay, she's, all right, and all she's right, a good, okay. she's a good actress, and okay. she's, you know, she right. she did get some range here. I feel like people are going to pat this movie on the back for oh, you know, how how bold and progressive. There's a lesbian angle, but call me when we have like a male gay spy something that isn't going to be slickly aestheticized and considered cool you know speaking of which Tinker Tailor told you spy again right yeah exactly good point indeed and you can hear more about this on our podcast yeah we've got a lot more to discuss yes we do there's a lot to unpack this week Uh, you can find it on the 2ACL website 2ACL.com or on Falcon Screen Um, we will be back next week talking about the Melbourne International Film Festival joining you from Melbourne as well as Wind River so it's a big Big week planned. Yep, we are going to be traveling next week. Look at us yeah, broadcasting interstate from everywhere. Broadcast. Yes, so yes, look forward to the podcast. Please check it out, and otherwise, have a wonderful week. Enjoy movies. Good night. night. Good, good night. And we're back on the Film Fight Club podcast. Wow, that was a. Oh, that was quite it's a. Been ages. It's been ages. It's been yeah. Ages. Know, right? So I I dropped a bomb in raising some provocative material at the end of the last episode. So As we you thought do. that needs to be clarified a bit. Exactly. And so this extended podcast segment. Yes, yes. Uh, we've been talking about Atomic Blonde, uh, starring Charlie Theron, and yeah, we don't see a lot of films, particularly ones with a female protagonist. Yeah, I had big issues with the way that her sexuality is depicted, in a number of ways. Firstly. Um, I feel that this movie is gratuitously sexualizing her the whole way through the film. For the record, I don't have an issue in the right context with gratuitous sexuality if if the movie wants to be about that. But to me, it feels like an exploitative element that's just been dropped into this movie that isn't necessarily the right way to, to represent this character because she's depicted naked pretty much when she's introduced. Then she's consistently naked throughout the movie at random intervals in between segments of the mission. I can sort of see your point in the sense that her nakedness per se is not serving any sort of purpose apart from servicing the male gaze. Yes, that's that's how I felt about it. It didn't feel... I, I think um, Glenn had a counterpoint to that. I don't know. I just think I appreciate the, the fact that, you know, a lot of these films where they're big action set pieces, you always have, you know, the... Keanu Reeves type figure or Bruce Willis type figure um, there's a new version of the Charles Bronson film that is about to be oh, yeah, released Death Wish. Uh, Death Wish with a very very tonally deaf trailer I just think I'm glad because you don't often see female protagonists in these senior roles and the fact that because you don't see too many it leads to a different dynamic and it's interesting and it's engaging and the femme fatale aspect as I mentioned earlier takes on a whole different meaning when you're up against uh, someone like Charlie Theron versus uh, Daniel Craig or Pierce Brosnan even Sean Connery type figure I agree I mean I'm in fact, yes, that was an interesting dynamic and I really loved and, you know, that dynamic played out was interesting. But once again, comparing that female nudity versus male nudity, you know, would we see a male character... That's exactly it. That if it was a male naked spy, that time. But the thing is, even yeah. if we were to see, you know, a male character naked, it wouldn't be that big a deal because we perceive male nudity very different to how we perceive female nudity. So That's maybe true. it's a question of how we see characters and, and, you know, maleness, femaleness represented on screen. After we finished recording the last episode, Glenn said that he didn't see so much of an issue because Lorraine 
Charlie's Theron's character was owning her sexuality. And while this is true, I don't think that um, people would ha- would find it equivalent if we kept ha- featuring in a regular James Bond type male spy hero um, film the male character naked in between all the the action segments, uh, but owning his sexuality. You know, I think we'd think that's a little bit odd, but we've been conditioned to accept this if there's a woman in place. And while I I understand that this fits with the femme fatale iconography, for the most part. She isn't really a femme fatale. She's allu- it's alluding to that, but she's also me- she's meant to be the emotional anchor point of the film. Let me be clear. When I'm referring to the femme fatale figure, I'm not referring to Charlize Theron Lorraine. I'm referring uh, to Sylvia right. Patella's character, okay, right. which is very distinct. Because she plays that a role sense. which we see throughout Lacari and a number of the other, other fictions, mm-hmm. and is very distinct from the Lorraine Broughton character and what Charlize Theron is doing as the lead figure in the right, film. Right, right. But I had problems with that because, let's be honest, even the supposedly, you know, amazing because progressive lesbian sex scene isn't that amazing i mean it's done in a way which is very gratuitous male gaze male gaze it was you very know, it was very sort of short sharp edits it and was used very teasing out slick you know, yeah. it was very much about like surfaces and look at how gorgeous these women's bodies were exactly. it didn't seem it, to it be wasn't like emotionally going in anchored the ways of showing something like blue is the warmest color so it wasn't even showing a proper lesbian sex scene i feel that what it was meant to do was give us some kind of emotional entry point into Charlie's Theron's Lorraine but I, we, I didn't really strongly feel her emotional tie to yeah. this girl or to the sex or anything because she's so stoic and cool and icy and uninteresting. But that was the point of her character. She, even when like James McAvoy, you know, jibe that I think I love you, she just says very coolly, that's too bad. And that's kind of the attitude she has that James Bond and any of these other figures has. And I actually want to go back to something you said earlier. I found it really interesting. You referenced James Bond and what we're seeing with other like male figures in mm-hmm. least least sort of lead role films, you can see how James Bond as a figure, my, in my favorite series, has changed from the time that Brosnan and Moore did it to when Craig's doing it. And we saw Craig come out of the water in Casino Royale a la Ursula. That was a fantastic moment. I, we saw it again uh, yeah. in Skyfall, and that's changing. And in Skyfall in particular, there's a iconic scene, it was a very famous scene where Yevier Bardem, Raul Silva, comes up to him and starts intimidating him. And he says, is this not your first time, Mr. Bond? And he says, what makes you think it's not my first time? Yeah, so yeah, where yeah. we're seeing Bond in fantastic. particular, you know, this bad this was always been seen as a bastion of masculinity malice is itself changing. But also, once again, I mean, when you look at that scene of him emerging from the waters and per se, it's done in a very sort of modest way. It's mm. not sort of also that ugly. And, you know, I want to be able to ogle at Daniel Craig. I'm sorry. <laughs> I want the freedom to be uh, able to do yeah. that. <laughs> I think I think it was very ugly. Really? I don't think it was ugly enough. I mean, sorry. It's ugly a word. I've just, just made up a word. Our perspicacity here is incredible. We've just created words on film. <laughs> and, you know, the, if the movie isn't going to be explicitly about sexuality, which I would have been, you know, as an el- as an extra element to the film, I would have welcomed that in Atomic Blind. If it's not going to be that way, I'd like it to at least have and this might sound bad, I'd like it to at least be a little bit fun and a little bit playful if it's just going to feature gratuitous nudity in the same way that we're able to just ogle Daniel Craig. It's something There's something nasty and button-pushy about the way that it's used in Atomic Blonde that didn't sit right with me. But this it just felt back, gratuitous. But this goes back to what Atomic Blonde is. I do take, the, I think, Virat's criticism to some extent that this film is a lot of things. It's an espionage thriller. It's a John Wick action film. And there's oh, these things as well. And Guy it's Ritchie a lot movie. to pack into 100 and something minutes. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and that, while 
made an imperfect film, you know, did try to cover the gamut of all things that we've come to love from action thrillers, fiction ones set in the 80s. I wish it tried less. No, but also at the same time, I think what discussion proves is that we just need more female protagonists in these situations. We need more range. Because, yeah, we're not used to... More examples. We're not used to seeing what they can achieve in these dynamics. We just don't know. So I think that's the funny bit, and I think I agree with Glenn there, that putting more female protagonists in these situations is going to refine the story elements and much more because their dynamics need, are very different. We need more Glenn examples. Just, because more ideas fem- of female heroes to weigh you know, each new example against. Captain Be- Marvel, come Marvel again. Right, well, there we go. Yeah. Because Could the be thing good. is, which uh, you know, I'm going to go back to Doctor Who, which it proved is that female characters and female actors and female situations, you know, they react very differently in terms of dynamics to how male characters would respond. And it's one of the best arguments for uh, having any range, any number of candidates for playing the Doctor now and well into the future. Well, right. and uh, we have that now, so we know. Yay! Let's see where it goes. That was our extended podcast, um, and we will be back, as I said, talking Melbourne International Film Festival and Wind River next week. Please hit us up on the 2SDR page or on Falcon Screen with suggestions for what you want us to fight about. Always happy to hear feedback and what you'd like and us to focus on. And please give week. me feedback on what songs I should sing in future weeks, and I will <laughs> oblige. Yes, you have a fair Bollywood number of Rod Shuli knows it and has already been practicing it in the shower, so he is ready <laughs> to belt it out. Yes, I will, and I will make sure that it's in scale. So. All right. Good night, guys. Good night. Have a wonderful night. Good night.